0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Dr. Kenny Linden. Kenny is an environmental and animal historian of Mongolia and Inner Asia. He received his Ph.D. from Indiana University's Central Eurasian Studies Department in 2022, where his dissertation was on the transformation of livestock herding in socialist Mongolia. His next project is on the history of climatic disasters in Mongolia and Inner Asia. And Kenny's joining me today to discuss a topic that bridges his academic interests in Mongolian history with pop culture, namely the Disney Plus Star Wars prequel series Andor, and its real-world parallels to pastoralism and the treatment of pastoralists in Central and East Asia by state authorities. So thank you so much, Kenny, for
0: joining me. You're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, talk about this today.
1: So... To start off, let's talk about Andor, or hopefully you can tell me about Andor, although I have seen the show, but maybe you could give listeners who might not have seen it some context as to what the show is, what's its place in the Star Wars universe, what's the kind of larger context, big picture of the show
0: Andor? Yeah, so it's a prequel to the movie Rogue One, which was the second Disney released Star Wars film. Rogue One takes place just before A New Hope, the original uh, Star Wars film and revolves around uh, uh, a number of rebel uh, agents and spies stealing the Death Star plans. The main rebel agent sort of the co-lead of the movie is named Cassian Andor played by Diego Luna and Andor is a prequel. Uh, the first season takes place five years before Road One. Um, and it shows how he goes from sort of, there's flashbacks to him as a child, but mostly how he goes from someone who is opposed, does not like the Empire, but just tries to scrape on by, to someone who is an active agent of the Rebellion, who is fighting with every fiber of his be- uh, being against the Empire. And um, within that, there's a center, um, uh, there's a three-episode arc that revolves around the planet Aldani, in which um, they go into great detail discussing the herding lifestyle of the people there, And how the empire has oppressed and disrupted their lifestyle. And uh, it is definitely a conscious reflection of a number of real life people's treatment by uh, states around the world, including, but certainly not limited to, inner Asia. Um, I Mm -hmm. mean, they they film in the Scottish Highlands and the Scottish Mm -hmm. Highlanders were actually treated the same way, um, so arguably those are the the. But we could compare it to Native Americans, um, various Middle Eastern and African pastoralists, um, and inter Asia inter Asian um, herders as well, including various Mongolian peoples.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, what are some of the sort of aspects of how Aldani is depicted that where we can identify these parallels.
0: Yeah, so it's really interesting. So um, Andor arrives and is sort of integrated in with a cell of non-natives but who had been living in Aldani uh, for a while sort of disguised as locals and they um, sort of give him a rundown of the history and place. Uh, um, so more or less, they were the Donny people. Um, I checked this. I, I wasn't sure if the people were called all Donnie or Donny, but according to StarWars.com, they're called Donnie. So I feel uh, sort of uh, I did uh, my research there. And they, um, they uh, lived in highlands herding various livestock, including dray. Uh, which uh, we see in the um, show, which are six-horned sheep, played by four-horned sheep, almost certainly a Hebridian, um, Hebridian, sorry, Hebridian uh, uh, sheep breed, which is in Scotland that often have mm-hmm. four horns. So they took a four horned sheep and just connected two more horns on them. Uh, and uh, they, this seems to be their main uh, form of um, sort of uh, livestock. But when the empire came in, they relocated all of the Donnie people off, out of their pasture lands into the lowlands and stopped their pastoral life uh, style. And uh, N- turn them into workers um, I'm guessing farmers but they don't say that specifically but mostly uh, so they talk about industrial laborers and the Empire uh, has plans to further disrupt their life in order to create a military uh, expand a military base um, A key feature of the Donny, uh, lifestyle is there a and as well as a major plot point in this three episode arc of andor is their religion um they worship uh, a a um or they celebrate a every four-year occurrence called um I of aldani um where, where a, a number of um uh it, It's a gorgeous sort of uh, astral event where the various um, uh, sort of colorful um, uh, things occur and it's in the highlands and after they were um, uh, kicked out, the Aldani people the Doni people make a pilgrimage from their new homes in the lowlands to the um highlands and the empire has been making it harder and harder for the people to do so by both um various rules and laws as well as making they say they made um uh rest centers so people could just like stop uh halfway through the journey. Um, and we see, uh, and this is strongly paralleled by the oppression of various local people's um, religions that we see, whether it's the Native Americans and the oppression of their ghost dance, for example, in the 19th century, um, in inner Asia, most of the inner Asian nomads um, lived under a socialist a state socialist government, which was officially atheistic um, and uh, oppressed their uh, religious beliefs. Um, eventually, they were allowed to sort of kind of um, practice an official version of of their beliefs, whether usually either Islam, if we're talking about Central Asia, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, or uh, Tibetan style Buddhism, if we're talking about Boryats, Mongolians, and Inner Mongolians, um, uh, they were allowed to practice an official approved version, similar to the official um, allowing of the Doni people to still see the eye without but heavily um, constrained and it even shows how the uh, there is a ritual exchange of uh, dray um, pelts between the empire and the Donny as a form of rent where the Doni officially rent the land to the empire and we um, many uh, pastoral and hunting peoples Had their um, economic uh, activities relating to imperial powers through the uh, exchange of and presenting of pelts. We can see this in the uh, when the Russians invaded Siberia, they sort of took over the previous Mongol imperial system where various hunting peoples had to give pelts. Uh, Pelts were a major form of um, trade in early uh, American colonization, where uh, beaver pelts in particular in in the northern sort of forest areas among the Iroquois, uh, um, Algonquin, and other uh, peoples uh, were a major form of um, uh, trade and um, in the socialist era uh, which is in Mongolia which is where I do my research uh, the Mongolian government exported a huge number of livestock goods as well as wild animal furs to the Soviet Union um, one of my dissertation topics as well as my first published article was about wolf hunting and uh, wolves are Hunted for two reasons. One, to protect livestock because they like to eat sheep. And two, because you can turn their pelts into um, hats and robes and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so the s- state socialist government had uh, annual plans of how many each province and each uh, district, how many wolves they were supposed to kill, as well as how many sheep were supposed to be born, how many sheep were supposed to be killed, how many uh, kilograms of meat. And then from that, many of these were exported to the Soviet Union and the broader socialist world. Um, then um, we see, it's a really interesting uh, in Andor how a number of indigenous peoples, both Cassian as a child, as well as the Donny people speak a non, uh, well, English, but in Star Wars canon, it's called basic. Uh, and, and that okay. is not subtitled. So yeah. they, they speak. Uh, um, I have not seen what real world language the Donnie, Donnie language is based off of. Starwars.com said that uh, Cassian's people's language was based on Spanish, Portuguese, and Magyar, are Hungarian. Okay. So it's an interesting building there. And actually, yeah. uh, the earliest connection, there's been a number of connections with Mongolia to Star Wars over the years. The earliest one, I would argue, is in Return of the Jedi, where uh, Ben Burt, the sound designer, took, uh, in order to make uh, the language of the Ewoks, he took the recording of 10... to. De- Tibetans and one Kalmuk Mongolian and sort of mixed it up and just sort of had them talk, uh, and mixed and melded their, um, what they said along with like baby noises and a couple of other things. Um, Mm. he said he wanted a primitive dialect, which of course is highly Mm. problematic. Uh, uh, it was 1983, but that doesn't mean that it's cool. But th- that's in context of George Lucas wanting to represent the Ewoks as sort of the Vietnamese defeating the American Empire. The, oh, yeah. the Ewoks, technologically primitive, again, problematic, but there it is. Uh, people who defeated the Galactic Empire.
1: Mm-hmm. Um
0: And then over the years, there's been other uh, Mongolian sort of references with um, Padme Amidala, uh, Queen Padme Amidala in uh, the um, episode one Phantom Menace. Her main dress, the red dress with uh, sort of horned hair is identical to uh, noble women's Hulk Mongolian or independent Mongolian uh, noble women's dresses. If you Google hmm. Mongolian noblewoman, you will see an identical um, dress to what Padme Amidala wears. And most yeah. recently, in the video game Jedi Fallen or- Jedi Knight, or, no Jedi Fallen Order, yes, it opens with a song by the Mongolian rock band The Who, H U. Um, and uh, they made—they were commissioned by an, uh, the video game company to make a to write a song and make up a language that's very similar to Mongolian but not Mongolian. <laughs> uh, and so they sort of made up their own language, made this song that's like used uh, diegetically, I believe is the term. Like it starts with the main character listening to this rock song within the mm. universe uh, that is made by this famous internationally renowned Mongolian band. So over the years, there's been a number of sort of uh, connections, but I, I would argue that the most sort of meaningful can be found in Andor.
1: Mm. It's interesting that you bring up Padme Amidala's dress, because I, when I was watching Andor, I was thinking that the clothing of the Donny to me, looked quite kind of Central Asian. I don't know enough to really be able to locate it anywhere specifically, but do you think that that was a kind of intentional visual reference as well?
0: I, I definitely do. There's a number of sort of Central Asian local outfits. The Soviet system, which was sort of emulate, formed the basis for first the people's for first the Mongolian People's Republic, which was the second socialist country in the world, and then. Uh, The People's Republic of China and then various other socialist systems, they, uh, socialist states, they required a detailed, they created, based on Stalin's writings, a nationality policy where the idea was you, uh, each nationality needed to have its own language. Uh, culture, you produce uh, socialist um, programs uh, in that language, you have local cadres and leaders from that culture, and eventually you raise that culture high enough that they no longer are that specific nationality but are now a shared socialist um, sort of, sometimes it's called Homo Sovieticus. And in their uh, holdings in Central Asia, the Soviet had to apply this same nationality policy. Now, in the real world, it was not as easy as, ah, oh, this person is this ethnicity, this person is this ethnicity. Because, you know, you you go to a remote area and you ask, who are you? And it's like, I'm from this area. Are you Kazakh or Kyrgyz? And it's like, I don't know, well, you know, like, it's like, what do you mean? I'm from, I'm a uh, Kar, uh, Karakal Pakistani kind of deal, mm-hmm. or, or I'm from the, this valley. Um, so one of the ways that they distinguish between what is a Kazakh, what is a Kyrgyz, what is a Tajik, what is an Uzbek is both based on language, but also based on hats and dress. So, Kyrgyz wear this kind of hat and Kazakhs mm. wear this kind of hat. Uh, Uzbeks and Tajiks, despite living right next to each other, one of them speaks more Turkic, the other one speaks more uh, Persian uh, language. Uh, Turkmen wear big furry hats, you know, like. Um, uh, and I would, I definitely thought while watching Andor that while the. There was not one – it was not a one-to-one like the way that Padme was. That is a Mongolian noblewoman's dress. The sort of general uh, sort of crossed-over coach with big furry hat is very Central Asian. Um, Especially if you look, uh, Turkmen robes are are very – so just long robes that are cut. Um, sort of straight down the middle, with big so, uh, sheepskin hats, um, are are very similar to uh, some of the clothes that the that Andor and his uh, compatriots wear to fit in among the Donny. So I would definitely I I would definitely say that the costume designers looked around and saw. Some Central Asian peoples as uh, inspirations, mm-hmm.
1: and so you said earlier that you uh, you described you know these parallels between the Doni and real nomadic peoples as a conscious reflection of real life. So have have you done some research into this? You know, are there interviews with, you know, the creators of the show that suggests that they were looking to real world kind of events and figures and visuals and things like that to create the people of of Aldani.
0: So that's a great question. So I have yet to find, and and this was inspired by uh, I, and I just got accepted to a conference on May uh, 4th uh, of course. (laughs) Uh, uh, So it is, called Realizing Resistance 3, the Expanding Universe Conference. It is a Star Wars academic conference, and Mm -hmm. I decided to uh, submit it uh, there. Um, I'm still working on it and still doing research. However, Tony Gilroy, the showrunner and writer, has talked about a number of other real-world inspirations. He has compared, as a whole the rebellion to various real life resistance movements and has said, this is what we are doing. He, he is not blunt about the idea that uh, Andor is about resisting oppressive imperial governments. And that includes uh, not just sort of like the British empire, despite the fact that the, 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 the galactic empire usually has British accents, um, mm-hmm. but also, you know, uh, things like authoritarianism in America and and so forth. Um, and some sort of conservative types who claim to be Star Wars fans have decried this as woke or bad. But George Lucas has, from the very beginning of Star Wars, consciously m- modeled the uh, it after the real world, and said like you know, I was inspired by Richard Nixon when I made the Galactic Empire. I was inspired mm-hmm. by the Vietnam War when I I made the rebellion um, against the Empire, the, the Ewok uh, example, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I have not found a quote confirming that the all Don that the Donny people are one to one like the others, the fact that it is, well, the fact that they're filming in Scotland in a place with the history of displaced Highland herders by an empire, and there are, as you say, they're wearing similar Central Asian outfits. Um, the, it is very, uh, I believe, um, and I, you know, I'm staking my academic uh, argument on it that this is a conscious. Uh, reflection of the real world. Um, if only because there are so many examples of it that even if it's not like, Oh, this is just like Mongolia. It's like, well, it's just like native Americans. It's just like, uh, um, the, the Scots and any, uh, the Bedouins and, and so forth. Um, um, uh, what one, uh, further parallel that i thought of was in the second episode of the arc um which is the um, i believe the fifth episode overall and and or when um uh cassian is getting used to this group the sort of young idealistic uh intellectual uh member of the uh, rebel group, Nemec, uh, offers him a drink of Dre, uh, these goats' milk, and said, uh, you know, it has all the nutrition you need, but it may make you question your existence. And Cassian takes a drink and immediately is like, oh, this is terrible, and then he spills it out. But by the next episode, when he's offered the drink, he happily takes it. I have seen this exact pattern and reaction in Mongolia when people react to fermented mare's milk. Mm-hmm. Fermented mare's milk is a staple of Mongolian um, uh, and broader inter-Asian uh, diet. Um, and numerous foreigners react extremely rudely <laughs> when offered sort of the national drink almost um i i once went to a local uh, nadam which is a the sort of summer uh game holiday um to a, a, to a district my friends and i went in order to offset the costs we brought along two uh italian strangers in order to so make them pay for part of the gas um and my friend and I were like, Oh, we got to get some, uh, attic, which is fermented mare's milk, uh, in Turkey, it's kumus. Um, and, uh, we were looking around and we met a Mongolian who studied in Germany, who's fluent in English. And he was like, Oh yeah, let me hook you up. Come on. And he, he brought us to the big, like sort of official tent and gave us all uh, a drink. And, um, Fermented mare's milk is definitely an acquired taste. Um, I do not go out and drink it for fun. But it's not – but all you need to do, even if you hate it, is take a sip and go, thank you, right? You don't need to, like, go – you don't need to – that's all you need, and that is polite. These people – that we brought along. They were like, oh, they took a sip. of like, oh, this is so disgusting. It's like baby vomit. And again, we just established that this guy speaks English. And wow. even the people who don't speak English can know when someone's going,
1: ah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the and, universal and, language of
0: disgust. Right, exactly. <laughs> it, it's a universal language. Um, and indeed, there, there's a um, famous um, Soviet... Mongolian studies professor uh, or oh, he wasn't a professor Mongolist in the 1930s wrote a guide like I, I think it was published in Pravda sort of like 10 things for Russians who are going to Mongolia to know and one of them was be respectful about their food don't, re- don't uh, react with the disgust because they can understand you <laughs> uh, and uh, think of how you would feel if some foreigner came to your grandma's house and reacted with disgust to her, her food. Um, And the fact that that is still a major part of it. And I, I don't think that necessarily Tony Gilroy was thinking, ah this is just like fermented bear's milk. Maybe he was, but either way, it's an experience that was like immediately it's like, that's identical to one that I had. And the fact that, Andor eventually like pretty much everyone who studies Mongolia, uh, that I know eventually was like fine with drinking it and, you know, happy to drink it because yeah, it's the staple that is like, uh, nutritious and only slightly, slightly alcoholic. Um, It's uh, it it really resonated. Is there a similar uh, food item or drink um, in your uh, area of research?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, especially so, like in the Middle East among the Bedouin, there's a lot of just like you know. Slaughtering and uh, roasting of like whole goats and sheep and things like that. And that's like, especially that's like a festive celebratory thing, you know, and that's like a real honor. But like, of course, when you have guests, especially foreign guests, you know, that's like a thing that you would do is you kill a goat and roast it whole and then everyone like digs in. And that's, that's like an amazing thing, you know, and it's a real honor for foreigners from... The West, that could be a little off-putting. So yeah, definitely, that's um, that's an experience that I can relate. It's definitely a universal thing, I think.
0: It would have been interesting if we saw uh, Cassian interact with the Donnie. Um, we don't see that, but but we still get a lot of their point of view um, of uh, of they they. Sh- Interspersed with, it's sort of like a heist. Um, we see a lot of uh, visions of, uh, or sort of um, the heist episode of uh, this arc while uh, the rebels are trying to steal this cash of money from the empire is constantly interspersed with the Donnie performing this ritual for the eye um, that is part of their religion. And this sort of like worship of a um, specific natural um, event or or location is very similar to the local religion found in Mongolia and throughout Inner Asia. Um, In uh, so Mongolians are Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan style Buddhist. Sorry, because um, like. It's inaccurate to say they're Tibetan Buddhists, both because they're not Tibetan, but also most nowadays, most of their rites are read in a mix of Tibetan and Mongolian. But um, it's melded with uh, a strong um, importance of localities, especially things like mountains. And there are various religious rituals around mountains, um, the sky, and so forth. And there are offerings. There are these things called owas, or um, uh, either spelled o v o o o w o o or o b o o, depending on your religion. Um, but offerings are made to these um, places, just like how the Donny burnt a. Um, a sheep, uh, or sheep, uh, pelt before their ritual. Um, so the, sort of the strong, uh, religious element of geographic locations or genus loci. Um, and, and the Islamic central Asians also have similar, um, practices. Uh, I'm just less familiar with them because that's not my um, specialty, but, but, um, this sort, these sort of uh, practices will get uh, outsiders of the same religion to claim like, oh, they're not really Buddhist, they're not really Muslims uh, or, or like so, certain anthropologists or, ethno- or religious studies people saying they're actually shamans and it's like, well, shamans had been exterminated from Mongolia for hundreds of years before the socialist era um and only after the end of socialism with religious freedom in Mongolia did shamans uh, start to redeclare themselves. Um, so, to call Mongolian a sh- Mongolia a Mongolia shamanistic country is just functionally inaccurate. Mm-hmm. But there are parallels and shared elements of shamanism and Buddhism when it comes to the reverence of certain geographical. Um, and natural um, sites. For example, I, I, um, I uh, one time I was in Mongolia, it was a major drought. And this actually inspired me for my uh, research into climatic disasters. Because everyone was talking about it's a drought, which means that in the winter, it's going to be a zhud, which is um, a, uh, in Kazakh, it's zhud, and like old, old Turkish, it's like yud. Um, This is a uh, winter disaster that kills off a large number of livestock because they can't eat, they can't access the uh, grass underneath the snow, frozen Mm -hmm. snow usually. And a drought usually precedes one because, I mean, the livestock are less fat because they have less to eat from the drought. So they're more likely to starve during the winter. Um, This was a topic of conversation. Often, as well as found often discussed in the socialist sources that I explored, so um, I realized like how important this was. But I also met a uh, local government official one time while camping uh, by by the Orkhon River, sort of the main a main river in Mongolia, and he he was like, "Oh, my friend, my friend and I are making this." sort of rock cairn, uh, um, sprinkling it with various uh, um, uh, fermented mare's milk and other dairy in order to address the river spirit, to make it rain, to alleviate the drought. So this is a sort of major ongoing, and it was just him and his friend and a shaman was coming nearby. Like this was not a major religious I mean, it was a major religious, but it was not a major um, event. It was just like we need to uh, address this uh, environmental problem, um, which is, of course, becoming worse and worse due to climate change, as well as policies that include things like increased mining, which use up water and so forth, Mm -hmm. Um, farming as well.
1: So I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier about it being a shame that we don't that in the show we don't see Cassian okay. and or interacting with the Donnie, because you've clarified something for me that apparently I completely missed while I was watching the show, which is that I didn't realize that this rebel gang sort of that he teams up with weren't themselves Donnie that like completely went over my head. And so that's interesting to me, because when I was watching it, I was seeing Cassian in that light as sort of like a Lawrence of Arabia type figure, like teaming up with this sort of indigenous, you know, nomadic people to fight the empire, you know, in this, so I was seeing like the Donny as like the Bedouin, you know, the empire is like the Ottoman Empire, you know, I was sort of, I had that kind of storyline in the back of my head. And now I realize that I'm mis- kind of mistaken, I guess, in drawing that parallel. But so what then do you make of the fact that there is this outside group of rebels that has embedded themselves in this kind of nomadic pastoralist society. Like, what does that kind of tell us about the history of nomad state relations and this universal perception of nomads as rebellious, peripheral, kind of threatening, you know, all of these kind of stereotypes that states tend to have towards nomads can we
0: view that storyline more sort of in those terms do you think yeah that's a great point yeah it, originally it's not clear and they never sort of say like oh we came here for, from but once you, it's sort of revealed by each person telling their background their story of oh i was in prison on this planet i was a stormtrooper um, we find out that the leader of the cell is from Chandrilla and related to Mon Mothma. Um, and we don't know where her girlfriend is from, but we know that she hates the Empire as well and is presumably also off uh, from off-planet. Um, and uh, we also don't know where Nemec is from, but based on his accent and sort of... Um, Uh, firebrand nature, I would also say he's off-planet. So it is interesting that, you know, there is a stereotype of nomads as these sort of constantly rebellious, constantly, like, violent people. And yet, um, within the socialist era in Mongolia, there was a strong... Sort of historiographical argument by socialist historians that, oh, the Qing Empire, which was the Manchu ruled last empire of China, it's important to note that they were Manchu rather than Chinese themselves. But, uh, and early on, they were closely aligned um, sort of culturally and linguistically and so forth with Mongolia. But at, uh, centuries later, they, they, and they supported colonizations of Mongolian lands by Chinese, especially in Inner Mongolia. And, you know, Independent Mongolia declared independence, Outer Mongolia declared independence in 1911 because they saw what was happening in Inner Mongolia, Mm -hmm. saw various reforms uh, to settle people, to uh, sort of move uh, Mongolia, remove Mongolian culture and said, we don't want to be that. We we joined the Qing uh, voluntarily, and we are voluntarily leaving, um, which is an interesting argument. But during the socialist period, various historians said, oh, we used to be great warriors. We had a great empire. But the Qing came in, and they intentionally made us soft by introducing Tibetan-style Buddhism, which talks about peace and all this kind of stuff. So – and I would argue that – so there's a stereotype of nomads as sort of like these boundless people who just wander all over. But there's been extensive um, research by people like Christopher Atwood and David Sneath who show that uh, this is – Certainly not true in Mongolia, where since the Mongol Empire and probably before, people lived in bounded regions, um, ruled usually by a lord or prince. The commoners worked the livestock of that prince, or, or later on it also was, could have been a monastery, and they were not allowed to leave their region slash community. Um, uh, and, uh, so, but there are other nomads who were disc- who? Historical sources do su- te- seem to suggest war more violent. One of these were actually a certain group in Tibet, where people today often think in the West were like, "Oh, Tibetans are so peaceful." But um, Robert Ekvall lived in uh, um, amongst uh, certain uh, nomads in Tibet, and he's like, "Oh, they all have swords, and they're all constantly wanting to fight each other." Uh, so this sort of this idea that they're not, hashtag, not all nomads are violent, uh, but there are some that are perceived as violent or were promoted as warriors by the empire. Sort of the similar, the, how the British empire designated certain ethnicities as like the Sikhs are warriors, the, the mm-hmm. Gurkha are warriors kind of deal. But the fact that da- the Donny people themselves are not rebelling actively um, as, as far as we see we, we don't know what happened in the decade uh, 15 years b- uh, before when the empire was formed but if anything ironically it reminds me of how certain early Soviet sort of intellectuals and agitators would go to these regions to Siberia to Central Asia embed um, themselves and say hey you know Marxism is here you guys got to turn on your nobles, your rich people, your religious leaders, especially. And this was understandably mixed. The rebel cell is all there to sort of, as envisioned by the mastermind, the idea is to spark a rebellion across the galaxy. So this idea of non-local agitators coming in, embedding themselves, and saying like, wake up and let's go, is ironically very similar to the Soviet strategy which later on led to forced sedentarization deportation, mass execution and starvation of various herders in Central Asia and Siberia um, which is again one of those things where like history is very complicated and can't sort of there's a reason why a lot of people historically, were really on board with state socialism and why other people were really against it and why there's often the case people were both for and against it. Um, you know, mostly wanting a middle way that didn't involve murdering people, uh, mm-hmm. while also promo- also wanting things like, uh, equality and, um, social and economic, uh, reforms, um, and modernization, science, and, and so forth. So it's also almost like how the early revolutionaries in, in the Boston Tea Party dressed up as Native Americans. Mm-hmm. We don't know how much of this is based on sort of we need to just crack down on someone or they actually thought that all, that the Donny did it, but we do see later on some of the Imperial Security Bureau saying we've detained hundreds of Donny and are cracking mm-hmm. down on them. And Lucian, the leader of this sort of rebel cell, his goal is to make people suffer so much that they have to rebel, make the Empire squeeze their fists so much that they have no choice but to wake up. Um, and this is a very, i would argue sort of um revolution so this fits with a number of revolutionary models including that of the soviet bolsheviks um who often uh either co-opted cooperated or tried to um instill these sort of rebellions in various non-russian native regions um and certainly the Mongolian um, revolutionary Revolution was, uh, of 1921 uh, was uh, homegrown, uh, led by Mongolians. But before they uh, kicked it all off, they went to Moscow, got Lenin's approval, and got uh, hundreds of Red Army soldiers on their side based on the fact that a white Russian, so sort of Tsarist Russian uh, soldier had occupied Mongolia. So the Red Army said, okay, you guys fight against the Chinese, we'll fight against the Russians, um, but you get your country in the end kind of deal. So there's this complicated sort of situation where... Uh, it can be very messy between like who is, what is the locals rebelling? What is the uh, sort of outsiders rebelling? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that Andor shows that Donny as passive. We see the leader seemingly sort of a social and religious leader who leads the Donny people to view this religious experience of the eye being very dismissive and unhappy with the empire, but he's playing ball in order to allow his people to participate in this religious experience. And that's another form of resistance, I would argue, that is not necessarily, it's not the same as armed, but the fact that he is not sort of, the fact that the empire is putting up all these roadblocks to stop his people from practicing religion, and he's still going through anyway, is a form of resistance. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll go back to Aldani and see what happened there. But I I hope that there's a mention, maybe that's hoping too much, in a relatively uh, realistic and somewhat dark show. But uh, it is ultimately, I would argue, about hope.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you brought up about this other kind of somewhat common historical phenomenon of nomadic people sort of becoming these pawns between you know states and in sort of in-state struggles and between other state authorities and in that sense, I think, then maybe my Lawrence of Arabia comparison isn't that far off, where it's the British kind of manipulating the Bedouin and fomenting rebellion among the Bedouin for their own sort of political purposes. So yeah, there are a lot of other historical and geographical parallels that I think could be drawn here. Maybe just a final question. Uh, I'm just curious, are there other examples of kind of nomadic lifestyles in the Star Wars universe, you know, in other films, TV shows in the Star Wars universe, because I I mean, that hadn't really... That question hadn't occurred to me until just now as we were talking. And I, you know, as I told you, I'm not a Star Wars lore expert, but I can kind of remember a few things in a few of the movies and other, you know, pieces of Star Wars media that I've seen where now I'm sort of thinking like, oh, yeah, maybe those people did live in this kind of way. Like these people did have that certain type of architecture. Like, is this something that we've seen in other places in, in the galaxy?
0: Yeah, um, the, and, and we see this in the first uh, film, uh, A New Hope, with the Sand People or right. the Tusken Raiders. Uh, they uh, ride on Banthas, which are, um, it was played by a 22 year old Asian elephant. And this elephant, they rented her from a, a circus in uh, Tunisia where they filmed and put a whole bunch of hair on this poor elephant. And uh, that was the Bantha. And over the years we've got, and George Lucas has said, I don't have the source of the exact quote where he has it, but I know he said this wasn't ins- the sand people were inspired by Bedouins. Okay. Um, it's interesting. They wear a um, sort of they're, Sort of completely wrapped up with goggles, yeah. Um, so, like, sort of visually, they're not. Except in Attack of the Clones, in Episode Two, they are. They show up again, and they actually kidnap, um, torture, and eventually kill Anakin Skywalker's mother. And the first major act of Anakin going to the dark side is slaughtering a whole village of Tuscan people. And as he says, I slaughtered them like animals, uh, the, the, the women, the children, um, and, and so forth. Um, and the, the, we see a couple of female Tuscans and they have sort of a stylized Islamic female, uh, sort of, um, burqa-esque, mm. uh, Face covering, um, and but interestingly, in the for, first in the TV show The Mandalorian, um, we see Tuscans show up again, and the Ma- Mandalorian uh and the protagonist, he's friendly with them, and uh, when someone's like, oh, I I hear their, the I hear their locals, uh, the locals the. I hear the people on this planet say they're savages and his response was if you ask them it's their planet you know like and, and so and he's like there are hard people for a hard hard, uh, for a hard, hard world and sort of um, and then they show up again in the book of Boba Fett which I found a deeply d- disappointing show as a lifelong Boba Fett fan I was really booked out, <laughs> but During For a while, he lives first as a captive and then as an adopted member of the Tuscan people. And we see a bit more of that. And we see that they sort of move camp to camp with their Banthas. Um, And it is a commentary on sort of indigenous people, but not one as well sort of done, I would argue, as the um as we see in andor and in um the clone wars animated tv show we see a number of different non-human species on different planets um, and one is actually uh definitely designed after also designed after mongolians ha- women have similar sort of hair horns have a dale Like robe with like Mongolian um, designs. The Mandalorians themselves are often described as a nomadic warrior people. They don't like seem to herd anything or or they ride on giant mythosaurs, whatever. We don't know what a mythosaur is. So they ride on things, but they're mostly just like like to fight and murder. There is a history of sort of showing nomadic people as like these warriors, violent peoples from the sand people Mm -hmm. to the Mandalorians. Um, But they are increasingly sort of humanized or sand people aren't human, but, you know, uh, personized uh, as the years go on where people it's like, yeah, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's not great. These sort of, um, like all creators, George Lucas grew up in a certain uh, environment that had stereotypes that I I think were quite common about non-American and European peoples. And he was sort of reacting, he was like, I like Lords of Arabia, so I'm going to put in some, (laughs) some people who are sort of like that. There is definitely the history of Star Wars, of showing like violent nomadic people, which is again is a really, as you pointed out, interesting contrast to the way the Aldani are are depicted.
1: Yeah, it's quite a departure in Andor then, because um, yeah, that did kind of stand out to me. I think when I was watching, although I didn't, I couldn't relate it to sort of previous depictions in the Star Wars universe. But I was really struck by this depiction in media of a kind of peaceful peaceable nomadic group, seemingly, you know, where, but you still do get quite a relative, you know, considering how relatively briefly they appear on screen, you still get quite a rich sense of their kind of culture, the religion, which you discussed, the history, the history of their relationship with the empire, things like that. You get quite a rich backstory, which has a lot of, as we've been talking about these real world, Parallels to real nomadic groups, but but without getting into that kind of the warfare, the yeah. militarism, which is such a frequent sort of stereotype and trope. So this, so yeah, this was quite refreshing to me, yes. really, as a as a piece of media.
0: Yeah, and another uh, instance I realize of sort of resistance of the Donnie that they mention was is that when they're sort of telling. Cassian about how everyone was deported from the highlands, they say, oh, there are a few like herders who moved back and are still herding, mm-hmm. and sort of illegally. This is definitely the case today in uh, the People's Republic of China, which has forcibly removed her- herders in Inner Mongolia, mm-hmm. Xinjiang, and Tibet from their native pasture lands. Currently, their explanation is... We're preserving the environment. And of course, the uh, because, oh, these goats eat too much grass. Yeah. Which, which is silly, you know, because uh, and in Tibet, they say, oh, the yaks eat too much grass. It's like, well, goats and yaks have been around for thousands of years. It's the fact that there's increased farming and mining, uh, climate change and policies that hurt uh, herders, why they have... Um, deported herders into uh, small settlements, just like the Donny and like the Donny, some people have illegally returned to their home pastures. It's tri- tricky finding like contemporary good, like up-to-date contemporary research about this because these are all not topics that foreign researchers are allowed to research. But, um, um, a, a close friend of mine, uh, Goldana Salamjan, who is herself a Kazakh from Xinjiang, uh, is writing about these um, ecological migration, deportation from the steppe lands to these prefabricated places you know. where they're like, we'll give you jobs. It's like, I can't afford to live on what you're paying me yep. and you took all my livestock which were my livelihood and i you know where my parents and my parents parents pasture lands where i grew up is no longer uh, my land and, and like the Donny, it's not like mongolians and kazakhs are fighting violently against these i'm sure there's some people who you know i don't know punch a police officer and end up disappearing because of that but you know they respond through protests right and and sort of the or secretly returning home and so forth or, or uh clinging to their culture that they can um in the face of not just deportation but outlawing their well functionally outlawing their language by replacing all their language classes with Chinese as opposed to Mongolian, uh, Uyghur, uh, Kazakh, Tibet, and, and so forth. Um, and again, it's sort of, they, they are responding in a constrained way the best that they can. Inner mongolian herders and for- former herders are not running around mm-hmm. raiding villages as a response they're protesting. Yeah, I
1: think that's a really nice way of putting it and of looking at it. Is these more sort of subtle but realistic and kind of everyday modes of resistance that Indigenous peoples sort of have to engage in that Andor kind of reflects. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Thank you for teaching me more about both Andor and Mongolian history. Uh, give gentlemen. me a lot to think about. I'm sort of inspired to do like a whole Nomads in Star Wars well, series now. Great. so stay tuned and if you want to come back to talk more about some other pieces of media in the Star Wars universe, I yeah. would not be opposed to that. but for now, thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome and thank you uh, for your invitation.